0: of Jesus um, what that means for us and so we're gonna be in 1st Corinthians chapter 15 today um, where one of the Lord's own the Apostle Paul writes about the resurrection of Jesus and why it matters so much and so 1st Corinthians chapter 15 today I'm gonna read for us starting in verse 12 through verse 19 you can follow along as I read here's what God's Word says now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Amen. Well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. And Father, you are the creator of all things. You hold all things together by the word of your power. And so, Lord, this morning came together because you ordained it. And Lord, you know each and every person that has come here this morning. You know our situations. You know our circumstances. You know the very thoughts in our minds. You know those of us that were eager to get here this morning. You know those of us who barely made it. And Lord, you welcome us as we are. Thank you, Lord, that you are a gracious and tender God who desires to be known by us. And so, Father, that's what we ask today. We ask that you would reveal yourself to us today. For those of us that know you, Lord, we want to see more of you. And, Lord, those here this morning that do not know you, I pray that you would reveal the glory of Jesus Christ today. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? As cultural trends start to happen, there are some people that like to kind of remain on the sidelines and kind of ask that question. What's the big deal? As people kind of get up in a frenzy about things and things start to get really, really popular, maybe you found yourself in that place of like, what in the world is the big deal about this? I tend to find myself in that category. As I look on people that start to obsess over a new sport like pickleball. I'm like, what in the world is the big deal with this thing? Or new apps that we download on our phones and takes over all of culture. And I I find myself thinking, what in the world is the big deal with this? Why are people so crazy about this? Or, Or new TV shows, what is the big deal? And I often find myself wanting to stay on the sidelines and be the contrary voice that says, this is not a big deal. This doesn't matter until I finally dip my toe in the water and experience said thing and realize, oh, this is amazing. I did this for the longest time with the Star Wars universe. I know, it's crazy. I, I grew up as a child seeing the Star Wars movie and I thought, you know what? They're cool, but what's the big deal? Like I have friends that go crazy about this. My friend, Aaron, who was just standing right here is one of the biggest Star Wars nerds I've ever known. And for the longest time, I just thought, what is the big deal with this thing? And they started coming out with new movies and new TV shows and then I started taking my son along on the journey and we started watching these Star Wars films and TV shows and all these things together. And I started to realize, oh, this is awesome. They've created this wonderful universe that overlaps and has all these different planets and characters. And now there's rides. And I've had my eyes opened to how amazing this universe is called Star Wars. It's pretty cool. But sometimes I think we can look at things going on that people make a big deal about and just kind of simply say, what's the big deal? And I think if we are honest, there are many of us who have had a hard time believing that what a Jewish man did in the middle of Jerusalem 2000 years ago has anything to do with my life today. How in the world does something like that have any kind of influence on my life today in Southern California in 2023? Essentially, we kind of look at today and recognize it's somewhat of a cultural holiday, maybe kind of tip our hat to Jesus, but essentially sit back and say, what's the big deal? Why does this really matter? Well, it matters first and foremost because we believe as followers of Jesus that Jesus is actually alive that this is not some theoretical reality where we just kind of say, well, Jesus was a really cool guy that lived a couple thousand years ago and he had some good morals and good teachings. Therefore, we just kind of recognize him and tip our hat and respect to him. But we actually believe this morning that right now in this very moment, Jesus Christ is alive. We actually believe that to be true. And if that is true, it means that there is no more impactful event that has ever taken place on planet Earth than the resurrection of Jesus. There has nothing that has impacted and changed more lives than this very moment. It has changed the lives of billions upon billions upon billions of peoples. In fact, not just the lives of billions of peoples, but the eternities of billions and billions and billions of people. The resurrection is a big deal And yet I think some of us here this morning, whether we believe in Jesus or maybe we've just kind of grown numb to what this day is, we kind of ask ourselves, what's the big deal? My aim this morning is to show you, by God's grace, to show you what is the big deal with this moment, to plead with you honestly to follow Jesus. That's my goal this morning. I wanna plead with you to follow Jesus. And if you already follow Jesus, I wanna plead with you to follow Jesus even more closely. As I plead with you to follow Jesus, there may be some things that the Bible says, therefore what I will say that will offend you. But the Bible is an equal opportunity offender. It doesn't single any of us out. It encompasses all of us. If you haven't been offended by the Bible yet, just keep reading. You'll find something eventually. But I do this because I want to show you your need for Christ, all of us this morning. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we have a letter that's written to a church that is really messed up. They need to know Christ more and more. They have a lot of issues. And as Paul comes to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he tells us why the resurrection of Jesus is such a big deal. And he's gonna focus on three realities of the human condition that are radically changed if Jesus is alive. Three human conditions that are radically changed if Jesus is alive. The first one, he says, is this, is that your faith is futile. Your faith is futile. But then he's going to say, But but Jesus is alive. Your faith is futile, but Jesus is alive. Look with me with what he says here in, in chapter 15, starting in verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, not only is our preaching in vain, but your faith is in vain. Or he says down again in verse 17: if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Now everyone has faith. Everyone. That's not just simply for religious people. Everyone has faith. Some of us here this morning might think I don't really have faith. That's what Christians have. Whatever gets you through the day is is fine for you. But for me, I simply don't have those things. We sometimes think that faith is just blind, illogical trust in something. Faith is just kind of like something that you're hoping to be true, but you really know isn't true, but you have faith. Therefore, like you kind of are encouraged. That's not faith. That's Probably more like foolishness. Faith is simply putting your trust in someone or something. And it often involves your mind, logic, reason, emotion, action. And all of us are doing this. All of us in this room are putting our trust, our confidence, our security in someone or something. All of us are doing this everyone has to serve or hope in something as their ultimate aim faith you say no I I don't have that I I live for myself well if that's you then what matters is your freedom to choose your faith is actually in your freedom that will be the thing that delivers you and gives you true meaning you say I, I just live to make a name for myself well then for you what matters is achievement your faith is in success Or if you say this morning, my my whole goal in life is just, just to be a good person. And if that's you, then what matters is kindness. And your faith is actually in your own morality and your own goodness. The question is not, do we have faith? The question is, can what you put your faith in actually produce what you're hoping for? Can what you're actually putting your faith in produce what you're hoping it will? And Paul is writing here in 1 Corinthians 15 to say, all faith that human beings have in things that are other than a risen Jesus are futile. And that word futile means this, aimless, worthless, unproductive, ineffective. He's saying, if your faith and your trust is in anything except a risen Jesus Christ, your faith is worthless, unproductive, Futile. In Luke chapter 24, as the women come to the empty tomb to see Jesus, they think they're going to find a dead Jesus and anoint him with some spices. They find that an angel has rolled the stone away and they confront these women with this phrase by saying this, why do you seek the living among the dead? And what a profound question that is for every single one of us this morning. Why do you seek to find living things among dead things? They said, Jesus isn't here. He's risen. Tomb is a place for dead things. You won't find life here. And yet, many of us this morning are daily seeking life among dead things. We're looking for meaning and comfort and status and security and safety in a whole host of things that are actually dead things. And yet we think we will find life there. If your faith is in anything else, it will let you down. You ever trusted in somebody's word and been let down before? I remember the time when I had an internet salesman come knock on my door and I opened the door and I was very skeptical, but he smooth talked to me. He promised me double the speeds for my internet in my house at half the price. And i said that sounds amazing where do i sign that sounds great so i switched internet companies he gave me his card with his number on it said call me if you have any questions well i was a little surprised when i got my first internet bill and realized it wasn't half the price it was more expensive and the speeds were nowhere near what he promised so i called his number guess what no answer i called again no answer i finally called the internet company and i said hey here's what happened And they said There is no deal like that that exists on this planet. I don't know who told you that or where you heard that, but you're not getting that deal. I felt so duped and disappointed. It bothered me. I thought my trust in him would pay off, but it didn't. What makes faith productive and effective is not our passion, it's not our fervor, it's not how confident we are in it. What makes our faith productive and effective is the object. Is the object of our faith actually trustworthy? Does the object of our faith actually produce what we're trusting it to produce? If we trust in our finances and our money, well, what happens when the market changes like we've all experienced? What happens when it really crashes like it did about 15 years ago? if our faith is in our relationships and the comfort and the safety that is provided there, well, what happens when the unimaginable happens and someday one of them rejects us? If our faith and our trust is in our bodies, what happens when one day they don't work the same way? What happens when our confidence and our faith and our trust is in our status and one day we lose our power and our influence? I know that not one of us in this room is okay with reaching the end of our lives and concluding it was meaningless. Not one of us want that. Not one of us want to reach the end of our days and realize none of it mattered. That's a nightmare. Would you hear the grace of God this morning that extends his hands to you to say, I don't want that for you. But if you are trusting in anything less than a risen Jesus, it is where you will find yourself. We don't like to hear that. It offends us. But it's what God says to us by his grace. In fact, if you can imagine for a moment that Jesus is actually risen, if that's actually the case, don't you want a good and kind God that's willing to say that to you? It isn't to say that if you don't follow a risen Jesus, you don't have any value or you don't do anything good, but it's simply to say this, that in the end, all of your pursuits will bring you nothing but meaninglessness. But Jesus is alive. But Jesus is alive, and because he's alive, it means your faith does not need to be meaningless. There is actually an opportunity for you to have a faith that's actually productive. Because Jesus is alive. Because if Jesus is alive, then faith in Jesus is the most logical and worthwhile decision. If that's true, it's the most logical thing you could ever decide to do is to follow him. The faith, the Christian faith is grounded on an event that happened in space and time in history. The resurrection event begins with this. The angels rolling the stone away, not to let Jesus out, but to let us in, to see there's no body here. The essence of the Christian faith is to say, come and explore it, come and see it, come and ask your questions, come and bring your doubts, come and look into it, this is a real thing. The entire faith is based on a real person actually existing. Jesus is never afraid of any questions, any doubts, any concerns, any skepticism. This has happened. Jesus is alive. History is on the side of this message. There has been no good, reasonable, logical explanation that has stood up to critique for the resurrection of Jesus, other than the fact that he is alive. In fact, Paul would say in a few verses before this, in 1 Corinthians 15, he would say this in verse three, he would say, I delivered you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. This was promised long before Jesus even came to earth that he would die, that he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to real people, to Cephas, who is Peter, then to the 12 disciples, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. What Paul's saying in there is he is saying, this is not some fairy tale. The Lord Jesus appeared alive to real, actual, physical, historical people. He welcomes us to look into this, to say faith is not just some blind, illogical hope against hope. It is trust in what God has said he did and who he says he is. And if Jesus is alive, it means that your faith can be anchored in an unchanging reality, a historical fact. And if he's alive, then Jesus is who he says that he was. And who did he say he was? He said he was the son of God, the forgiver of sins, the giver of eternal life, the light of the world, the bread of life, the future judge, the door of salvation, the savior, the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to salvation, the essence, the source of all truth and all life. If he's alive, he is who he says he is. And if he's alive, then faith in him isn't futile, it's actually productive and effective. Romans chapter 5 tells us that by faith in Jesus, we receive access to him. That Jesus comes to earth as taking on human flesh to be a representative for sinful mankind and to live a perfect life of no sin. Why would he do that? Because we needed someone to represent us. And in order to represent us, he had to live a life of perfection that we couldn't live. Therefore, he could be a worthy sacrifice to go die on the cross to pay the price for our sins. The price for our sins is the wrath of God. And Jesus dies on the cross, taking the payment and then rises from the dead and then says to us, trust in me. Turn from your sins and believe. He doesn't say, here's a list of commands. If you can obey them well enough, I'll accept you. No, he says, put your faith in me. And simply by faith and trust, you can be saved. That's the most productive faith I've ever heard in my life. You're telling me I don't have to achieve something, accomplish something, I simply lay down my efforts and open my hands and believe in everything he did and I can be saved, not only now but for eternity? That's the most, that's like the most productive day I could ever have. Trust in Jesus. Faith in him can be effective. I remember one time I was with a few buddies and we were in the, the mountains of, or in the canyons of Utah, and we were about to rappel down the side of a cliff. And we were with some guides, so we, you know, we had some safety measures in place. But there came this moment where you had to rappel over the cliff and you had to actually trust the rope to hold you. And it's this very like, counterintuitive moment where you're like, I'm literally going backwards over a cliff and you're telling me to just like surrender and trust this rope. I know it's a strong rope, but this seems crazy. And sometimes when people are trying to repel backwards over a cliff, they don't want to trust the rope. They start trying to like grab the rock with their hands or like float or just like do foolish things that don't make any sense and it becomes really dangerous. But the moment you actually sit back and allow all of your trust and your faith to go into the rope, you actually get to have a wonderful experience. It's a faith and a trust that actually produces something. It's effective. And that's what it's like when we finally trust in Christ. When we actually allow him to be who he is and throw our faith onto him, it's productive. It brings us life. It gives us access to God. Our faith becomes productive because of who it's in. So throw your faith onto Christ. Trust in Him. He goes on to say this the second human condition is this, is that you are stuck in your sins, but Jesus is alive. What he says in verse 17 He says, If Christ has not been raised, not only is your faith futile, but you are still in your sins. You are stuck in your sins. There was a story I came across recently in the news, maybe, maybe you saw it just a couple days ago, about a snowboarder who was uh, s- snowboarding in the backcountry woods somewhere, and he was with a few of his friends, and he fell into a tree well, head first, and he was buried underneath the snow and trapped. A little piece of his snowboard was sticking out of the snow. His friends are trying to look for him and find him. He said uh, afterwards that, because he ends up being rescued, spoiler alert. uh, He said afterwards that his friends were radioing him and he could hear his friends calling his name on the radio, but he couldn't reach his radio. He's so buried and stuck in the snow. Until hours later, a random skier comes by and sees the tip of his snowboard and digs him out. And after he was rescued, he said this, I was going to die if I was left on my own. And friends, that is exactly where every single human being is with our sin. We are stuck in it. We are buried in it. Every single one of us. It's the bad news of sin. Romans chapter three says this, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us has been not only born sinful, by our nature, but also by our choices. Our choices don't make things any better. We rebel against God. We don't believe that He is the authority to follow. We don't believe he's good. We believe we're better. We can do a better job. We sin against the Lord. We turn from him. And the Bible is clear that there is a penalty for sin. The penalty is to face the wrath of God and receive death for our sins. Romans chapter six says the wages of sin is death. And here's the reality. We don't like to think that we're sinners, but every single one of us openly will confess this because we will all answer yes to the question of, do do you lie ever? Do you ever sometimes cheat? Do you ever want to steal something from someone? Do you ever covet something that's not yours? Are you ever greedy? Are you ever filled with pride and feel like you're better than others? Do you ever actually have hatred towards another human being? You ever slander people and gossip about them and tear them down to prop yourself up? Of course we do. We do these things all of the time. There's none of us that walks around and say, I don't do those things. No, instead we, we sort of say like, well, in general I'm good. As if God is grading on a curve like our favorite high school math teacher. <laughs> but the Bible is very clear. It says the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. It's, it's, it's what we have coming for us. It's what we deserve, the wrath of God for our sins. And the Bible is very clear. Someone will always pay for sin. The question will be who? It will either be you for your sins or it will be Jesus for your sins in your place. We are unable to be liberated from this sin. We're stuck in it like this snowboarder, upside down in the snow, hopeless and helpless and alone. In fact, Jesus says in John chapter 8 that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Romans 8 would say that those who are of the flesh cannot please God. They are not able to. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't submit to God's law. It's stuck in sin. It needs rescue. It needs help. That is all of us. Christians are not the people that somehow just avoided that problem and are better than everyone else. There are some people that think that, but they're wrong. And they're probably not Christians. All of us are stuck in sin. We cannot submit to God's law. We cannot follow him. We're stuck. But Jesus is alive. And because he's alive, it means you don't have to be stuck. You don't have to face the wrath of God for your sins. That's a bad thing. Most obvious statement of the day, that's not a good thing. But because Jesus is alive, it means he actually accomplished something on that cross. He accomplished forgiveness for all who believe. Because he's alive, it means that his death wasn't a defeat. It was actually a victory. It was actually working salvation for countless sinners who would come to trust in him. Colossians chapter 2 describes what happened on the cross. It says, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God has made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How did he do it? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. God is a just God. And like any good just judge does not just dismiss sin to say, whatever, I don't care. No. He cancels the record of debt that stood against us by paying for it himself. And because he's alive, it means the check cleared. He did it. He accomplished it. You say, how can one man suffering on a cross save a multitude of men? Or as one of my kids asked me one time, how could Jesus have died for my sins? I wasn't even alive. How could one man suffering on a cross 2,000 years ago work salvation and forgiveness for countless billions, you're claiming? How could that possibly be true? He's one man. Because this one man is worth more than all of them put together. That's why. Because Jesus is of infinite value. You know, every once in a while we see a story pop up on the news about a prisoner swap right about countries trading prisoners and it usually results in a bunch of controversy and everybody's got their opinions about well this person really wasn't worth that trade and oh we really should have you know got more for this person because this person was of uh, of more value and more worth and anytime this happens you get this discussion about how much one individual is worth to a certain country the worth of one individual sometimes in these situations outweighs the worth of another. Sometimes one man is worth five. Sometimes one man is worth ten. But in those situations, we, 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 we see that there are times when the value of one is so valuable that it spans the worth of multiple. The worth of Christ outweighs us all. His death is of such immensely cosmic and eternal value that he can accomplish salvation for countless multitudes because Christ outweighs them all. We could put everything in the universe on one side and Christ on the other side, and he would outweigh them all. He is of infinitely more worth and value and beauty and goodness than any of us put together. That's why. That's how. And when we trust that, when we believe that, we can sing the words of the old hymn that says, take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name, but his love abides forever through eternal years the same. See, because Jesus is alive, you can be truly, fully forgiven. We all want that. When you put your faith in Christ, you can not only be forgiven of all of your sins, but actually be declared righteous by God, not because you earned a thing, but by his grace. So that a Christian now stands before God, not with his good record of how good of a life he's lived, but by saying, I come to you as a sinner who's been forgiven and you now declare me as righteous. When God looks at his children, he sees them as good and righteous and clean and holy and forgiven because he gives them the merit of Christ, the righteousness of Christ. Third human condition. You are going to perish. That's what he says in verses 18 and 19. Then those, if Christ hasn't been raised, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope, in this life only we are of all people most to be pitied. Without Christ, you are going to perish. And that word perish is not just an old-fashioned way of saying you're going to die. It actually means something a little bit different. This, this idea of, of perish is, is this idea of, of not only dying, but being destroyed. Yes, we're all going to die, and we need to face the reality that our death is coming. But the Bible also says that there are some, when you don't trust in Christ, you are not only going to die, you're going to perish, meaning there's something worse than death, and it's perishing. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He's talking about perishing. This idea of perishing is to be not only dead, but to be dead and eternally and consciously aware that you could have been alive. It is to be dead and to be aware that there is no escape from the fact that you are dead. That's how the Bible describes perishing that's an awful place to be by God's grace and mercy I hope that there are none of us in this room that ever have to experience that reality that ever have to perish and be dead and be eternally and consciously aware I could have been alive if I had trusted in Christ I could have been alive but instead I'm here I'm stuck in death and there's no escape hopelessness for all eternity? Is there no more demoralizing feeling than hopelessness? Nobody wants to perish. The question is, where is our hope for salvation from perishing? Psalm 33 says that there are false hopes of salvation. Psalm 33 says, the king is not saved by his great army, The warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. We hear that and we say, that's not true. The king's definitely saved by his great might and his army and his war horse. But this is the Lord talking and saying, I see on a scale you don't see. It looks like to you, the king is saved by his great might. It looks to you like the war horse is a hope of salvation, but I'm telling you, that's not how anyone is saved. Meaning this, there are things that we trust in and bank on that we are assuring, we believe with full assurance, that's salvation. And they're false hopes. So where's your salvation from perishing? Maybe for you this morning, it's just this reality of saying perishing isn't real. What you're talking about, Nick, this morning is just stupid. That's actually not real. When we die, we just die. Well, you believe your intellect will save you. How you've, you've, you've reasoned so well to get to that place, you believe that will be the thing that helps you escape from perishing. It's just not real. Some of you think, well, I don't really care. I'm just gonna live it up as best as I can here because if I'm gonna perish, then I'll perish then, but right now I'll live it up and you think that your pleasure will save you. Or you think your goodness will save you. That yeah, you've been a good enough person. If perishing is actually real and I have to stand before a God someday, well, surely he'll have, he'll look at my life and think, I was pretty good and I won't have to perish. Or you fill your life with so much security and wealth and status and community and friends and family and people and you think that'll save me. Because if we, if we perish, at least we perish together. What will save you from perishing? All those things are false hopes for salvation. By their great might, they cannot rescue you. But Jesus is alive. Which means this, you too can be alive. You too can have abundant life now and eternal life forever. It's the promise of one of the greatest verses in all of the Bible, John 3, 16. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Do you not see how gracious God is? That this morning, on this Easter morning right now, that he would have every single one of us here to say this to us. Perishing will come for us, but God so loved you that he gave his only son, that if you believe in him, you trust in him, you believe that what he's done is sufficient for your salvation, you don't have to perish. You can have eternal life. Hope in this life also and eternity. And eternity with heaven in Jesus, eternal life is not some static, stagnant place. It's dynamic. The Bible says, in eternity with God, you go from glory to glory. It's not boring. It's not ethereal. It's not spiritual. It's physical, tangible, real, progressing, growing, increasing from glory to glory. But the other side, perishing, is stuck in death, eternally, forever, hopelessness, no future. But for the Christian who trusts in Christ, death is not the final stop. Because Jesus is alive, resurrection is coming. See, for the Christian, the grave is like an airport lounge. I've never been in an airport lounge. I've always wanted to be in an airport lounge. They look really luxurious. But the the point of an airport lounge is this, it's where you wait in between flights on your journey. It's not your final destination. For the Christian, death is like an airport lounge. It's just a quick stop in between legs on the journey, but it's not where we finally rest. It's not where we finally enjoy abundant and eternal life because Jesus is alive. Resurrection is coming. Or as the poet George Herbert said, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel makes him just a gardener. Or as Sam Alberry says, You don't bury a Christian, you plant him. One day to arise in glory. See friends, because Jesus is alive right now this morning, your faith doesn't have to be futile. You don't have to stay stuck in your sins. You don't have to perish. But what will you do? Are you content to have a futile life? Are you content to be stuck in your sin? Are you content to perish? Are you content to just say, this is all garbage? Or will you hear the merciful call of Christ to say, turn from your sins, repent of your sins and believe? Because he's alive. Right now, this moment, Jesus is alive. Seated at the right hand of God. His presence is here this morning and I plead with you to look to him, to come to him, to trust in him. He will never disappoint. He is the treasure that you long for, the prize that you are pursuing, the riches you're hoping for. It's him. He's the joy that you crave, the meaning that you're longing to have in your life the purpose that you've been seeking, it's him. He is the answer to your guilt, the forgiver of your sins, the remover of your shame. It's Jesus. He is the water that you thirst for, the bread that will satisfy you, the life that you have been longing to find. It's Jesus. He is the friend that you yearn for the Savior that your soul is aching for. He is the shepherd who cares for you. He is everything you need, everything you want, everything you could hope for, everything that you could dream of. It's Jesus. He's the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He's the king of life, and yet he's the lamb that's been slain for sinners. And he is the risen Jesus, who's alive and is inviting you this morning, right now, come to me. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me and trust in me. Let me lead you. Let me care for you. Let me wash your wounds. Let me remove your shame and your guilt. Let me fill your life with tremendous meaning and worth and dignity and value. Let me give you a hope and a future. Come to me. Not with all of your efforts. Not with all of your good deeds. Not all clean and pretty, but just come to me as you are. And trust in me. Jesus is alive this morning. Will you follow him?